I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast E, As You Like It. The setting of As You Like It is a dukedom somewhere in France, not too far from the forest of Arden, an imaginary composite of A, the real forest of Arden in central England, in whose outskirts Shakespeare's birthplace, Stratford-upon-Avon, was located. B, the real Ardenne forest in northern France, and C, the imaginary forest of Ardenne in Thomas Lodge's prose romance Rosalind, which is a source for Shakespeare's play. At the beginning of the play, the dukedom is in moral breakdown, corrupted by the sin of envy. As Dorothy Sayers explains in her introduction to Dante's Purgatorio, envy is the second of the deadly sins identified by the Christian tradition as the seven roots from which spring all other sins. The fundamental meaning of the word is, quoting Sayers, love of one's own good perverted to the wish to deprive other men of theirs. The early scenes of As You Like It depict Duke Frederick as having overthrown his older brother, the rightful Duke Senior, in order to rule in his place. He is also on the point of banishing Rosalind, Duke Senior's daughter, because her virtues seemed to him to throw his own daughter's virtues into shadow. At the same time, Orlando's older brother Oliver, who has sent their middle brother away and kept Orlando from getting a proper education, now is trying to have Orlando killed. As he says at the end of Act 1, Scene 1, he hates Orlando for his virtues. I hope I shall see an end of him, for my soul, yet I know not why, hates nothing more than he, yet he's gentle, never schooled, and yet learned, full of noble device, of all sorts enchantingly beloved, and indeed so much in the heart of the world, and especially of my own people, who best know him, that I am altogether misprized. This is a classic articulation of the sin of envy. Like Duke Frederick, Oliver feels that his own good depends upon causing his good brother's harm. By contrast with this corrupt world of envy at court, in the forest of Arden, the ousted Duke Senior is living with his loyal followers in virtue and simplicity, embracing their exile and finding, as he says in Act 2, Scene 3, Lines 3 to 4, these woods more free from peril than the envious court. Here they feel but the penalty of Adam, that is, mortality itself, including the difficulties of wind and weather and the necessity of laboring in order to eat, including having to hunt and kill deer. But they do not feel the threat from the human vices of high society. For what is there to be envied in one who lives in the lap of nature, with no palace, no land, and no possessions. These two worlds, which I also mention when I discuss settings in the third session of Chapter 6 in Series 1, represent respectively man sinfully at war with his own nature and man virtuously embracing and making the best of his nature. The migration of people early in the play from the court to the forest, and the intention to return to the court at the end of the play, depict 
both the individual's and society's journey from sin through self-knowledge to peace. And that self-knowledge comes with embracing one's true nature, which is a mystery of the transforming and healing power of love. In the forest, Oliver is converted by Orlando's risking his life to save him. At the edge of the forest, Frederick is converted by an old religious man. As a result of these transformations, Duke Sr. recovers his dukedom and Orlando his patrimony and more. This healing and reordering happens not at court, but only away from it, in Arden. For it is only in the forest that love is permitted to triumph despite the penalty of Adam. But in the idyllic natural world of the forest, love triumphs in more ways than moral regeneration. Rosalind, Celia, and Orlando, who all seek asylum there from the corrupt court, are not themselves in need of correction. But they are in need of a restoration of faith in the forms and relations of love, by which they have been deeply betrayed. In Arden, their faith in the selflessness of lover, brother, and ruler is restored, and a desirable future once again opens up for them. Rosalind takes the opportunity of her disguise as a boy to test the sincerity of Orlando's love by challenging that love in the person of the supposed Rosalind that Rosalind as Ganymede pretends to be. Does Orlando really love her? Or is he going to turn out to be like the as yet unregenerate Frederick or Oliver? Is he characterized by virtue and constancy, or subject to corruption like his brother and her uncle? Would he be discouraged by a real-world wife's human fallibilities, or remain faithful to his word? To accomplish his trial, Rosalind pretends to have cured another man of his love, and then sets about inventing as trying an image of Orlando's ideal Rosalind as she can. As the imaginary other lover's pretend beloved, she says, at Act 3, Scene 2, lines 410 to 417, that she used to grieve, be effeminate, changeable, longing and liking, proud, fantastical, apish, shallow, inconstant, full of tears, full of smiles, for every passion something, and for no passion truly anything, would now like him, now loathe him, then entertain him, then forswear him, now weep for him, then spit at him. And so, she says, she cured that poor lover of love. Later, at Act 4, Scene 1, lines 149 to 156, speaking of how she, as Ganymede's fictional Rosalind, would inevitably behave in marriage, she says, I will be more jealous of thee than a Barbary cock-pigeon over his hen, more clamorous than a parrot against rain, more new-fangled than an ape, more giddy in my desires than a monkey. I will weep for nothing, like Diana in the fountain, and I will do that when you are disposed to be merry. I will laugh like a hyen, and that when thou art inclined to sleep. The word hyen is an older form of hyena. And when Orlando asks, But will my Rosalind do so? She answers, By my life she will do as I do. Meaning to Orlando, 
yes, and to us, no. We know that Rosalind is not doing justice to the image of herself. The real Rosalind will not behave in the inconstant manner she claims for the imaginary Rosalind. We know this because we know her to have a virtuous, loyal, and patient character, despite the giddiness of her confession to Celia of her love for Orlando. The point of the wild changeability of the imaginary Rosalind is to see how Orlando will respond under the inevitable variation of moods that must occur in a real marriage. Orlando passes these tests of his character without disappointing Rosalind, though she pretends that his tardiness has disappointed the imaginary Rosalind. The final proof of Orlando's character is no test that Rosalind devises, but one devised by Providence. It is Orlando's choice to risk his own life to save his hitherto evil brother from the hungry lioness. When Rosalind hears this about him at Act 4, Scene 3, Line 98 and following, there is no more question of her concern for his becoming a Frederick or an Oliver. His heart is whole. Her attempt to cure him of love, which he denies the possibility of her doing, ends by curing her of doubt. In addition to the brotherly love Orlando has shown and the spiritual love to which Frederick is converted, the four couples marrying at the end represent four degrees of the erotic relation, and their weddings incarnate their respective potentials for harmony. These four meanings of marriage are punctuated and solemnized by the miraculous appearance of the god of marriage, Hymen. The words of Hymen at Act 5, Scene 4, Lines 131 to 136, are recast about fifty lines later in the words of the cynical Jacus. Both summations clarify the way that love works in the world differently for those differently gifted to receive it. Hyman's prediction is that no cross shall part Orlando and Rosalind, and Jacob's bequest to Orlando is a love that your true faith doth merit. Their love has all along been deeply rooted in virtue, and in their marriage Eros and virtue are harmoniously wedded. Oliver and Celia are heart in heart. Their love is a sudden revelation, and their wedding embodies the virtue of true submission to that true revelation predicated on Oliver's restoration through repentance. Phoebe must accord to Silvius, and she does, saying, Now thou art mine, thy faith my fancy to thee doth combine. That is, she is now attracted to him, and no longer to the illusory Ganymede, and commits to being faithful to him. Jacob predicts for Silvius, a long and well-deserved bed. Their wedding and their marriage bed are a single image of the triumph of nature over wayward fancy. As for the somewhat cynical and lustful Touchstone and his rather dim but virtuous Audrey, Hyman predicts that they are sure together as winter to foul weather, and Jacob predicts wrangling. For those who can rise no higher than marrying only for sexual gratification or merely stupidly, harmony will take the form of marriage punctuated by a predestined interdependent marital discord. 
The road to all these harmonies is paved with wit, the endlessly inventive wit of Rosalind and of her author. Let's now look at two key lines of the play. 1. In Act 2, Scene 4, Lines 54 to 56, Touchstone says, We that are true lovers run into strange capers. But as all is mortal in nature, so is all nature in love mortal in folly. To which Rosalind responds, Thou speak'st wiser than thou art ware of, in order to make us aware of the deeper implication of his words. Touchstone's term mortal has two senses, subject to death and subject to error, as all mere mortals are. He means that just as every natural living thing is destined to die, so every person who by nature falls in love is fallible and therefore destined to commit follies in relation to love. The deeper wisdom that Rosalind finds in his words is that in a nature in love, folly itself is mortal and dies. Those who by nature fall in love are redeemed from their folly by love. In other words, the same true love that makes us commit follies in its name heals our natures of their mortal fallibility. 2. Act 2, Scene 7, Lines 166-167 to 167. This is the ending of the set-piece speech of Jacus on the Seven Ages of Man. That speech is a brilliant evocation of the lifespan of a human being from the dark viewpoint of the melancholic. Man starts in mewling and puking, whines his way to school, loves the superficial in his mistress, fights for no principle but the bubble reputation, makes a comfortable show of himself when he should be serving justice, wastes away unaware of the evanescence of material things, and ends sans, meaning without, teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So says the melancholy Jacobs, But not Shakespeare, for he has Orlando just then appear carrying his servant, old Adam, in his arms. We know this because in the very next line, Duke Sr. says, Set down your venerable burden. Thus our eyes are treated to an immediate and perceptible refutation of Jacob's dark vision in a reverse pieta, in which instead of the dead young man in his mother's arms, we see the still living old man in the young man's arms. And we are to conclude that even the fading old man is not sans everything, so long as there is love, here in the form of the virtue of devoted loyalty. Old Adam is, of course, a reference to the Adam of the Garden of Eden and to that in our natures which is in need of regeneration and redemption, which appear here embodied in the Christ-like kindness of Orlando to his own servant. Here now are three specific notes to help in your reading. 1. Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 36 to 38. Rosalind and Celia are engaged in playing with words and logic. Celia says, Why should I not? Doth he not deserve well? That is, Why should I not hate Orlando? Doth he not deserve well to be hated? 
She is asking, since her father hates Orlando, does he not properly deserve to be hated by her too? Of course, she doesn't really mean that she ought to hate Orlando. She is trying by her ironical assertion to discredit the logic of her own argument. Rosalind's response, let me love him for that, intentionally changes the word well, in Celia's phrase deserve well, from an adverb to an object, from meaning very much deserve to deserve all good things. She means let me love him because he deserves well, meaning he deserves to be loved. 2. Act 2, Scene 1, Line 5 Here we feel but the penalty of Adam. The first folio, the only early source for this play, here reads, Here we feel not the penalty of Adam. Though it can be argued that the folio's not makes sense, we experience but don't care so much about the penalty of Adam because we experience no human sin of envy, Tybalt's emendation of not to but makes simpler and, I believe, better sense. Here feel we only the penalty of Adam, namely the curse of work and of not being in the Garden of Eden, as opposed to the additional torments of the flattering, the envious, and the otherwise depraved among men in society back at court. Having to decide between these two readings is a good example of the agonizing trials of a modern editor. 3. Act 2, Scene 4, Line 1 Rosalind says not, O Jupiter, how merry are my spirits, as is printed in the first folio text, but, as Tybalt and Warburton amend, O Jupiter, how weary are my spirits. Unlike the emendation in the previous note, this one poses no agony for the modern editor because it is clearly justified by Touchstone's reply in the next line. I care not for my spirits if my legs were not weary. Rosalind has called on Jupiter, by the way, because the name she has taken for the boy she is pretending to be, Ganymede, was the name of the beautiful lad whom, in the myth, Jupiter had carried up to heaven to be his cupbearer. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. <laughs>